0: A listener's note, this series includes descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and grooming. It is not recommended for young audiences. The People vs. Robichaud and Riley is an ongoing case. At the time of this episode's original air date, the defendants had not been convicted of any crimes alleged against them.
1: My name is Lauren Hayden, and I was brought into this Situation with Grant. Roa show when I was on Tinder and I saw a doctor and he was handsome and I saw it right. His profile was talking about wanting a good partner, looking for someone who didn't drink or party too much. <laughs> so I just thought he seemed pretty perfect, perfect.
0: From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck. This is OC Swingers, Chapter 9 No Tiger.
1: She slept for years on a bench in a park. She made some passes at men in the dark. They began running along through the night. When she began loving, they put up no fight.
0: After the show began to air, I started to hear from all kinds of people who knew Dr. Grant Robichaud or had interacted with him in some way over the years. I heard from high school classmates, former party pals, business associates, and a woman who says she used to sell Grant his vintage festival coats before the Burning Man festival each year. He introduced himself as the doctor, she told me. He was handsome, but as most Burners who think they're being sexually free, he just came off as greasy and sleazy to me. I was told about Grant's tendency to excise people who disagreed with him. If he was going to burn a bridge, one former colleague told me, he'd burn it down with gas. He loved it. He thrived off of that. Another former colleague admitted that he saw Grant be very rude to girls, treat them very poorly. I started to piece together a portrait of a manipulative man who was different things to different people. He definitely had a dueling personality, said the first colleague. A-type personality, very charismatic, definitely very social, knows how to entertain and communicate and make people laugh at times. And then, when he doesn't get what he wants, he's like a toddler kicking and screaming and pounding his feet in the middle of a target. I talked to one woman who said Grant Robichaux sexually intimidated her during a routine consultation in 2017. She says he placed his hands on either side of her body while she was wearing nothing but a flimsy robe and pushed his hips between her legs. And that a year later, on the very day of his arrest, Grant made another uncomfortable pass at her, in the office. She says that members of the Newport care staff noticed something was off. She even sent me materials to corroborate her story. "'I was terrified of running into him and having him hurt me or something, because as small as he is, he is still quite intimidating,' she said. "'He has a presence about him. He is very intimidating. He doesn't smile. He's got this look. He's very scary.'" I know guys like the rough sketch of Robichaux I've put together in my own head. Charming, deceptive, good-looking men whose misdeeds thicken the air everywhere they go. I can say with some certainty that men I know have sexually assaulted women I know, and yet I can't hold their feet to the fire because the law doesn't work that way. It's not enough to know someone is a sexual predator. You have to be able to prove it. It is my personal opinion That most men don't understand the thing the rest of us know about rape. That it's everywhere, all the time. That we all know a guy who has raped, or will rape, a woman. Or women. That one woman's good guy or perfect husband is another woman's absolute nightmare. Or that once someone invades your body, you don't get to unknow what that is like. The influx of whispers and rumors about this story made me think about Lauren Hayden a 27-year-old woman who met Dr. Grant Robichaux over a dating app and subsequently told her story to camera crews circling the Newport Beach House after the couple's arrest in 2018. I remember seeing those videos, of a young, pretty brunette in a rumpled purple t-shirt getting a little spun out over the media flurry. At points in the interview, while recounting a date during which Grant Robichaux became, quote, way too aggressive, Lauren is openly crying. She wipes away her tears with French manicured fingers and keeps on talking.
1: I just kept trying to rip my clothes off, and I kept saying, you know, like, I'm not ready for that.
2: A woman is coming forward to say she narrowly escaped becoming another victim of handsome surgeon Grant Robichaux. The doctor is now.
0: Char- the early news segments about Grant and Sarissa always began the same way a sexy couple flirting and partying together in sun drenched locations. They'd show videos of Grant facepalming Sarissa or jokingly throwing up gang signs in a van. These clips were always credited to Grant or Sarissa's personal YouTube channels, which have since been scrubbed from the internet. It's through the lens of these videos that the world first encountered Lauren, a young woman crying outside Grant Robichaux's house. A few days after that interview, Lauren described to Kano Whitworth, the same ABC journalist who would go on to conduct the couple's would-be vindication interview.
3: I feel like I finally
0: woke up from a bad nightmare. About her bad date, alone in a hot tub, with Dr. Grant Robichaux, a date that took place a year earlier on October 11th, 2017.
1: When I was saying no, it was like he wasn't even hearing me. It was just, he just kept going at it. It was like he had no concept of personal autonomy, like no concept of consent, no concept of no. Lauren and Grant's texts from just before the Tinder date back in
0: 2017 are still available online at the Daily Mail. The messages are just one of the countless banal exchanges three different sets of prosecutors have been mining for hidden meaning for years.
2: Hey, it's Grant. Much easier. I'm on the peninsula.
0: I'm on the peninsula too. I'll head over soon.
2: Cool. I'm in the middle house. Call and I'll come out and grab you. Sounds good. FYI, my bro-in-law just stopped high.
0: I'm still getting changed. No worries.
2: My cooking is popular.
0: Haha, as long as he doesn't eat my half. 17 minutes pass. Be there in five. I talked to Lauren, too, about a year ago, back when I started reporting this podcast. She told me everything she remembers about that night, which is
1: all of it. So I got a couple bottles of wine and... I went over to his place, which I know people always give me a hard time about because they're like, why would you go over to their place? But I guess it's just something that like, it's hard to try to force people to take you out to dinner these days, if that makes sense, you know, like, it just seemed chiller. It just didn't seem as heavy. And he said that there was, you know, his, some of his family was over, which was true. So I was like, okay, whatever, you know. And he was making dinner on the grill, and I thought, you know, outside, and there's a jacuzzi. I was like, cool, you know, this sounds like fun time, whatever. It didn't sound creepy in any way. So I went over, and he was making dinner on the indoor grill, and his brother-in-law was there. I don't know who it is actually, looking back. I think it was Sarissa's brother. So some dude was there, and there was some game he was watching. I wasn't interested. I don't watch pro sports. And he made dinner. I either ate some of it or poked around at it. And he had like a special distiller for wine. And I I brought a red wine and a white wine, and I thought he was going to choose one. And he took both. He just took both and then opened a different wine.
0: Lauren was immediately struck by Grant's
1: bravado, by his almost chaotic zest for life. He just enjoyed being like on the edge of everything. It wasn't just the guns and the drugs. He also had like an illegal flying machine that he told me about on our date. Get this, he had a fucking backpack that he put a like engine on and a fan and he just like flies around in this thing. I am telling you, this is what he told me on the day. He said one time it broke and he fell like some insane amount of feet and then he got it to work like last second and people were like calling all sorts of police and he like got the attention of like all sorts of like ambulances and like fire trucks and shit. It doesn't sound true, but you know what? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know this guy. <laughs> He goes on crazy trips to Mexico. He like he told me about this crazy tr- drug trip that he went on Mexico with a bunch of celebrities. And he like showed me pictures. I mean, he was showing
0: me pictures. And then Lauren says things got weird.
1: His brother-in-law left. We had dinner. We went to the jacuzzi. Um, he started trying to take off my top. I told him not to put my top back on. He kept kind of grabbing at it. I told him not to. And then, like, we went to his room. I kind of told him some of, like, some of my background in the Air Force and how, like, I wanted to go slow and how I thought that's what he wanted. And, like, I like him now for, like, you know, having a time in the hot tub, but, like, not necessarily, like, getting naked in the hot tub on the first date, you know? So then when I tried to leave, I had already changed back into my clothing and I was wearing, like, a skirt. And um, he had stuck his hand up my skirt as I was like walking up I remember it was like a ladder or a flight of stairs I think it was a ladder and he like and I just remember being creeped out by that and then I left the last time I saw him and then I texted him later like hey you want to hang out but I was really just gonna raid his kitchen and get my wine bottles but he didn't yeah he, I guess he wasn't interested because I didn't I don't know but whatever so then I never spoke to him again and then I saw what happened on the news and I freaked out
0: Lauren says that's how she ended up on TV recounting the date in the first place.
1: On the way back to my house in the morning, I drove past his house, and I was just like, "I wonder what," because he kind of lives like on this like one part of peninsula. So I just kind of drove past it. I was like, "I just wonder what like like if he still lives there or if he's moved." Like I wanted to see like moving truck. I don't know. I don't know what I expected to see, but then I just saw like a bunch of. Like people, and then they asked me if I knew him, and I was like, yeah, just told the truth. I was hoping to help other women come forward, and then no women came forward, and uh, I felt like, oh my god, what if this really was made up? And I was just making this poor innocent guy who, you know, did nothing except for be a part of this scam by the D.A. look like this monster because <laughs> he didn't even rape me and I was accusing him of raping all of these women. So I felt really bad.
0: Lauren Hayden says that having her name connected to the story has caused problems for her in the past. A former male employer made snide comments after googling her name on the first day at work. She stayed up on the case and started to feel like maybe she'd made a mistake talking about what happened to her. So when the defense's private investigator, Russell Green, wanted to talk after Grant's arrest, she didn't see the harm in it. She didn't anticipate some of the more creative interrogation techniques.
1: The hardest question that he asked me, and it still sticks with me, is like, do you remember a camera in his apartment? And I was like, no. And he he's like, well, there's a camera. And so if everything you say is 100% factual. like We'll be able to back that up. And I was like, You know, like, I think my story is 100% factual, you know? And then he asked me how confident I was, and I'm pretty sure I told him I was, like, 70 or 80. But looking back, I'm, like, still pretty 100% sure. I think it was just, like, the intimidation of, like, thinking, my memory's not as good as a camera. He said there was a camera at the hot tub, and that the reason the camera was put there was by the police because of the previous accusations. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I misunderstood him, but this is what the investigator told me. So, Lord knows, maybe he was just trying to see if I would tell him I had 100% accuracy in my memory, but, which I wish I said, but looking back, uh, I was just nervous. And I just wanted to tell the truth. I don't want Grant to get in trouble if he didn't do anything, you know? But at the same time, just my gut from dealing with him, you know? I think he said they were lying once the media storm blew out because I think only two people had come forward prior to the media storm. So he said the rest of them were essentially just piggybacking. And the first two were I don't remember why he said they were lying. I think it was something to do with handsome doctor type like scheme, you know, advantage artist type people. But being a woman, I didn't buy that, but the jumping on the bandwagon type thing. I was like, maybe, you know. But I wouldn't like to think that of any of the women. I would like to think, you know, that everyone's telling the truth, but obviously somebody's lying. After we spoke
0: over the phone last year, I sent Lauren a picture of Grant's brother-in-law, Bill Ward, who in October of 2017 was still living in the front part of the Newport duplex. You'll remember that Bill and his wife, Jennifer, were sued for negligence by Jane Doe 5. Yes, Lauren confirmed, That's who was there that day. But, she says, he left essentially right after whatever was on TV ended. You'll also remember that Lauren's date with Grant was in October 2017, a year after the two suspicious incidents were quietly opened and closed by the Newport Beach PD, and three months before investigators found piles of drugs in their home. This was a year before Tony Rakakis said anything about the quantity of women being sexually assaulted on tape, a year before two more women— would tell prosecutors that they were drugged or assaulted by Grant and Sarissa that same year, a period of time when Grant Robichaux was ostensibly living with Sarissa Riley, but didn't reveal that information to a woman he met on a dating app. When I went on a date with him, there was no indication a woman lived with him, Lauren told me. It was a really clean place, and he said he lived with his sister and his sister's boyfriend or fiancé or something. In the 64-page manifesto Matt Murphy filed before the motion to dismiss was rejected by Judge Jones last summer, the lawyer summarized the two alleged 2017 incidents. On July 8th, only three months before Lauren's date with Grant, a woman says that after a day-long escapade with the couple and several other women, Grant Robichaux raped her in his bed while Sarissa was in child's pose on the floor. Six days before that, A different woman says she blacked out after being served a single vodka and Canada dry by Sarissa. She woke up the next morning at the beach house wearing only a shirt with a completely naked Robichaux spooning her. She called the cops, immediately after, Matt Murphy says, and told them that she thought she'd been drugged by Sarissa. She initially agreed to undergo a SART exam, but ultimately did not comply to the swab test. This woman, the last and final Jane Doe in the amended complaint, did not report the assault to the DA until after reading about the arrests in the news. Jane Doe number 8 isn't even technically a victim in the case, but what is called an 1108 witness. California Evidence Code Section 1108 allows prosecutors to bring in evidence of the defendant's past sexual misconduct, alleged and otherwise, when they are currently on trial for a sex crime. Jane Doe 8 isn't charging Grant or Sarissa with a crime. She's simply there to testify to the defendant's character, their propensity to commit sex crimes. One could say that the only real difference between Jane Doe 8 and Lauren Hayden is that Jane Doe 8 told the Orange County DA's office and Lauren Hayden told the world.
3: Yes, of course.
0: I mean, are you comfortable with the fact that my voice is not as good as yours is my question. (laughs) This is my friend, the journalist and activist Abby Haglidge. Abby and I met in 2017 when I was working full-time at Glamour.
3: Um, Yeah, my name's Abby Haglidge. Should I say my full name? Yeah. My name's Abby Haglidge. I'm a journalist in Brooklyn. And we met through Glamour when I was brought on as a consultant, I guess, was my title. And I think early on, we connected over journalism and investigative stories, which I love. And so do you. And I think that night, I, I can't remember what we did before Did we like go to dinner or something?
0: We did go to dinner with a mutual friend of ours who was also an editor at the magazine and who also went home at an appropriate hour. That night, Abby and I found ourselves alone at a bar across from my apartment in downtown Manhattan. It's a dark place with a long horseshoe bar where the patrons are somehow seated feet below their bartenders. It was here, in this intimate space designed for people who want to be alone together, that I noticed the tattoo on Abby's forearm. No tiger.
3: I think people... When you say, I've been raped or, or you know, I was sexually assaulted, you can tell almost instantly how much they're going to be able to tolerate. Like, people will avert their eyes or kind of just try to say some conclusive statement like, oh, that's, you know, that's terrible. Hope you're okay. I mean, I get. It's who wants to hear a really dark story, you know, from a friend about something they endured. Um, I think especially among friends and family, it was hard to hear. But you can tell the people that are kind of... They're in it to listen and they ask questions and they're able to separate, which I think you were able to do, your story from their own safety. And I think that's part of the problem, especially for women, is it's just scary to hear about these stories and worry that it could happen to them.
0: Abby Haglidge's rape story is horrific. You can look it up online if you want to know what happened on the worst night of her life. She's since committed herself to using the experience to impact legislature in New York. The same legislature that, when she was abducted, drugged, and raped in 2013 by a stranger who saw her walking alone on a busy New York City street, destroyed the physical evidence required to pin a rapist to his crime only 30 days after it was committed. You can learn more about this work at risenow.us. It was uh,
3: 2015. I was 25 and had just had a fun Saturday in the city and was walking home in greenwich village where i lived i was on a super busy street and uh i think like some of the victims in your podcast i i don't remember how it happened you know i remember walking home and the next thing i remember is being in this man's car um that was a major sticking point for the nypde is they were like well why don't you remember getting in the car like how do you know you didn't just get in willingly and trauma does such weird things to your memory that it's really tough, but um, I was with him for several hours, I know, many, many hours actually, because I when I ultimately escaped, it was the morning time, the sun was up, um, and I just have sort of flashes of him and what was going on, but most of it is really... Obscured. I think, obviously, I'm sure you're aware, and maybe have even talked about how there are so many studies about how trauma impacts memory. And so I think of it as a good thing on some level that I can't remember a lot of it because it probably is really terrifying, and I would probably never leave my house again uh, if I remembered it at all. But it's also maddening in the case when you're trying to not only you know tell investigators, but tell family and friends because. My parents' immediate questions were like, well, why would you get in this man's car? And I don't know. And I'll never know. I don't know if I did. I don't know if he pulled the knife then and forced me to get in his car. Um, It took a long time to accept that those are memories. I probably just will never get back. Um, But it's such a cruel twist of fate that the, the same mechanism that your brain uses to protect you from a lot of this pain and trauma is really what hinders the investigations um, and stops the ability of prosecutors to have a clear cut case and a clear timeline. I mean, it's just often not something that we can produce uh, as survivors. And it's especially maddening for me as a reporter, because as you know, I mean, I'm trained to notice details and to pay attention to timelines and people and all of these different cues, both verbal and nonverbal. And, um, they're just not there. So it was, it's really tough in the aftermath to even tell people about it because that's where I think a lot of the blame comes in because people kind of see holes in the story and that's because there are holes and those holes are intentional and your brain's way of protecting you, but, uh, they really do a disservice. So I got comments, um, even from friends that kind of afterwards said, you know, well, you are super friendly. Um, you know, you are really, really friendly. And I wouldn't talk to a stranger who approached me. I think it's comforting for people to think that, to think that, you know, maybe I said hi and, and maybe that's why it happened. And I, for a while, I thought that too. I think a lot of survivors, you know, you you blame yourself because it's there's comfort in thinking that you were in control and maybe it was something you did. And then, you know, you think, well, then I just won't do that thing again. And once you kind of acknowledge that you didn't prompt this, that, you know, nothing you did caused you to get raped. It's, it's a really unsettling reality to accept. I think there's like, there's an innocence that's lost. It just fundamentally changes the way you see the world. And you just realize that bad things can happen to anyone at any moment. So the tattoo. It was about two years after my assault and, um, I was having a lot of health issues, new things that had kind of cropped up, like acid reflux and really bad stomach aches. And um, I had seen a bunch of doctors, tried a bunch of different medicines. I was having chronic pain. Just my body was really um, betraying me in a lot of ways. And finally, I saw this doctor, um, this Chinese nutritionist, actually, who I was saying, you know, well, is it something I'm eating? Like, what could it be? And she had tried a few different things. So finally, she had this appointment with me and said, you know, I think what's happening here is some PTSD potentially and some anxiety. You know, there are also so many studies showing the effect of trauma and PTSD on your health. And I kind of didn't believe her and wasn't really sure what she meant and said, you know, I'm fine, I'm dealing with everything. And she talked about really the evolution of anxiety. And she, you know, said, it was necessary at one point when we were living in the jungle and trying not to get eaten by animals to have, you know, our hearts race and our thoughts race and just be in this kind of activated, defensive position. And she said, you have that anxiety switched on all the time. She said, Abby, you appear face to face with a tiger. Um, And then she sort of, I remember, grabbed my forearm and said, there is no tiger I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It really hit me in the gut. So I think the idea that there is no tiger, it does kind of harken back to the evolution of anxiety. And this idea that, you know, bad things are going to happen, whether or not I, I worry about them or not. I think I have always been a worrier, but I've always been somebody that's anxious. I've always worried about worst case scenarios. And You know, having worries that I might get assaulted or raped didn't stop me from getting assaulted and raped. I think there's freedom in sort of accepting that some of it is out of our control.
0: Abby, who is not affiliated with the Robichaux case, never saw her rapist get convicted, even though she knows who he is. Her rape kit and the toxicology report was destroyed 30 days after the assault without her knowledge. She would go on to spend years. Telling herself stories about the kind of woman something like this happens to. But she didn't have to live through the enduring inanity of a criminal trial. Last week, we covered the explosive January 7th, 2021 hearing when victim's attorney Matt Murphy revealed he had come into some documents. More specifically, Matt Murphy had come into an internal OCDA memo concerning Jennifer Kearns, the so-called rogue investigator Todd Spitzer had placed on leave. That same day, the Los Angeles Times ran a story with the headline, Internal Memo Criticizes OC District Attorney's Review of Robichaux Rape Case that included damning quotes about the veracity of the De Novo Review conducted under Todd Spitzer. According to the memo, the article reads, The top-to-bottom review of the case against Grant Robichaux, 40, and Sarissa Riley, 33, ordered by Spitzer, was incomplete and contained inaccurate and misleading information. Then there was some back and forth about Matt Murphy's relationship with Jennifer Kearns, whom he'd come to represent in some legal capacity. The defense was up in arms. How could Matt Murphy represent four victims in the case and the original investigator? What is he, the only lawyer in Orange County? On March 25th, 2021, the attorneys reconvened in court.
4: This is a different type of issue that we normally do not see in in camera, where you have Marcy's Law Counsel, representing a number of alleged victims and also the individual who investigated this case at least early on. That is a red flag. There's no question that's a red flag. And I've told the court, everybody in the court, I've told counsel, that after, that's why we had that hearing. Mr. Cohen's one who requested it. I thought it was very proper and I want to address that issue also. But at the end of the day, when we was heard, and this is for everybody's benefit, It's harmless. I can't say any more than that. I know that you shake your head. How can that be harmless? It is, because I was there. I know what it is. And this could probably be resolved, again, maybe in five minutes or less. But I'm not going to put that pressure on anybody, because that's not my job to do that. Uh, That's what an encounter is, folks. And as devious as it may sound, Yes, we're hiding something. That's what an in-camera is. I'm sorry, but that's how it works.
0: He's saying that he and Murphy discussed the fact that he represents four victims and the former lead investigator in-camera as an in off-the-record in the judge's chambers, and it's harmless. If we knew, he says, we wouldn't care, but we can't know because it's off-the-record. Moving right along, okay. Mr. <laughs> Fell.
2: Judge, thanks so much. And um, I will be very brief. And I will not use analogies. Okay. Um, One of the words that's come out here is frustration. And you looked at Mr. Cohen and said, I'm sure you must be frustrated. Mr. Murphy brought up the part about frustration. I think the frustration here is with Mr. Murphy and my client. And I understand the role of a defense attorney. I'm also a criminal defense attorney. And I'm a former prosecutor and I'm an RC's victim rights attorney. But when Mr. Cone says that our goal, our goal is to get this case filed, our goal is to get in front of a jury, our goal is to have the jury convict, that's not our goal. Our goal is justice for our clients. Our goal is to be able to have our clients take the stand and tell a jury what Mr. Robichaux and Ms. Riley did to them and to let that jury figure out what justice is. Now, that's a different job than a defense attorney now. A defense attorney's job is to get their client off. Now, Mr. Cone may say, no, I don't want justice just as much as Mr. Fell's clients want justice. That's not his job. His job is not justice. His job is to get his clients off. His job is not to focus on the facts of the case. His job is to focus on Mr. Murphy. His job is to focus on his Curbs. His job is to focus on Mr. Spitzer. His job is to focus on Mr. pockets His job is to focus on our deposition. His job is to get in the weeds. He's doing his job. His job is to get in the weeds. His job is to have a jury look at the weeds. His job is to distract everybody from the facts of the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this. So he'll file his motion. He'll do his outrageous government conduct and make allegations that the case should be dismissed, not because his clients didn't do it, but he'll make those assertions that the government messed up so his client should walk free. Or Mr. Murphy somehow has a conflict with representing an investigator and victims so his client should walk free. Or this was too political, so his client should walk free. Or all the other reasons. But the reason that we've never heard is that my client didn't do it.
4: Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hang, on, hang on hang on why would you even bring that
0: up next time on the supersized season finale of OC Swingers
2: there is no reason for a woman to ever make something like this up there's just no upside to a woman for doing that
3: how could this case just simply go away something is amiss here there's something that the public doesn't know
4: politics don't play in the third branch of government. Remember that, right? Okay, good. All right.
0: OC Swingers is an AudioChuck original, executive produced by Ashley Flowers, and created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. It was produced by Josh McLaughlin, Editing and sound design by David Flowers, with additional research and fact-checking by Barbara Keene. Special thanks to Michael Carey, Anne Dybel, and Anna Hendrick of Quest Investigates, and Oren Rosenbaum at UTA.
2: So Chuck, do you approve? (coughs)